did a great job. Thank you. Um, so this was actually a very hard sermon for me to prep. I've actually preached this passage before, but the reason why this passage was so hard to prep was not because of Greek grammar or some word study that took me all week to figure out. The truth of this passage is actually very plain, very plain. I would suspect even a non-believer who just had a critical eye could understand what the plain meaning of this text means. However, my issue in prepping this sermon is how is it possible for a passage that is so clear and so well-known, so widely ignored? So I spent more time not focusing on how do I unpack the meaning of this text because the meaning is pretty plain, but, but why don't we live this text? Why is it that this passage, though many Christians across our country could say that they've heard that passage and they even affirm that's truth, the reality of that truth is non-existent in their own lives? And even more scary is, is it existent in my life? This has been a very uncomfortable week as I've tried to be real with myself and let God's word be a mirror to my soul and say, okay, am I just saying this or do I really believe this? Is this really true of my own heart? And with that, I'm, I'm going to pray again. I ask you to pray with me because I feel very helpless and weak because the, the reality is this passage is something you've heard before. And so the, the, the issue is what, what, are, what is going to be different this time than all the other times before? Why is this passage going to all of a sudden pop and make a difference in our life? And the only reality, the only possibility of that is the Holy Spirit bringing truth to bear to our souls and applying it. So pray with me. Help. Help, Jesus. Let this text ring true and penetrate deeply. Cut through all the fog. And Lord, in this room, there are many distractions. There's many things that are hurting us. Many are quietly suffering because of different things going on in our lives. And Lord, for the next 40 minutes, would you give us undivided attention with your word? Speak to us, Lord. Help us meet you today in this text. Use me as your servant to faithfully herald and apply this passage to my people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In our passage today, we see that the apostles don't actually know who Jesus is. And if you don't know who Jesus is, you're going to have a hard time following him as you ought to. Jesus exposes clearly where their hearts lie and then unpacks what it really means to follow him. So we're going to be tackling two questions. Who is Jesus? And what does it mean to follow him? Very, very basic questions. And yet, two of the most important questions you could ever ask, and more importantly, not just ask, to really apply. So, verse 18. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets of the old had risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. After all that Jesus has shown him, shown the disciples in the last nine chapters, he's now really pressing in. After you walked with me and apprenticed with me for these last nine chapters, he wouldn't say nine chapters, but in the, these past months, who do you say I am? Not who do the 
people say I am, but you, you three, you 12 who've been walking really close with me, you've seen me in my rising and my sleeping and all that I've done, who do you say I am? And Peter rightfully says, Christ. You're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Christ is just another word for Messiah. Christ would be Greek, Messiah would be Hebrew, the Christ of God. But what does this mean? Before we answer what does it actually mean that Jesus is the Christ, we should ask, what does Peter think it means? Because Peter's the one who said he's the Christ. So what does Peter have in mind when he says Jesus is the Messiah? Well, we've talked about this over and over again as we've been plodding through the Gospel of Luke, but Peter had an idea that Jesus would be this conquering king that he has been hoping for since he's been a little kid. That his parents and his parents' parents and his parents' parents' parents have been longing for this coming king that would make all things right, establish Israel as a, the, a dominant world power, take back what was taken from the Romans, cleanse the temple of all the pagans, and make all things right for the Jewish people. And not only that, Peter was one of the inside men. And so therefore, he would probably have a prominent position of power, would he not? He's got it on in the inside. He's like in a multi-level marketing scheme where he's on the first top row and he's going to get all the benefits if anyone knows what I'm talking about. He's excited because he sees how this is panning out and he sees his future very brightly. And yet, Jesus knows that he has no clue what he just said. He may have the right title of Jesus, but he doesn't actually know what that title really means. And we see this clearly in the other gospel accounts of this same situation. It's in Matthew and also in Mark that Peter says rightly, but he actually has no clue. So Jesus responds to Peter and the rest of the disciples. It's assumed that Peter's representing the consensus understanding of the disciples, I think. And so verse 21 is he strictly charged and commanded them not to tell this to no one commanded them to tell this to no one. Why would Jesus say this? You, you would think you would say, Jesus would say, yes, yes, exactly, Peter. Now go tell everyone. He says, no, don't tell anyone. I actually, I'm not just telling you not to tell anyone. I'm strictly commanding you. Now, why? Now, there's two possible reasons that I can discern. One would be one that's more evident in the book of Gospel of Mark, where we hear this thing called the messianic secret. We're not going to get into that right now, but th th this idea that Jesus is going incognito for a little longer uh, before he gets to Jerusalem. He's trying to keep things on the low for a number of reasons we won't get into. And the other reasons that I, reason that I think is possible is that Jesus does not want their trash, faulty understanding of who he is to be spreading. Because he knows that they don't get him. They don't get really what he's about. And he's like, I don't want you to tell anyone about me. Not yet. Not yet. You're not going to help right now. And so Jesus then unpacks what being the Messiah is all about. Would you look at verse 22? Shocking words. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. Suffer many things, rejected, killed, and raised. Can you imagine the disciples be like, suffer... Okay, well, I, I'm, I'm not, those aren't adding up. Those aren't the descriptors of a king, of a conquering king. Maybe a, a loser king, a failure king, a king that just got conquered, but not a conqueror. What is this? And if you've been around Christianity or churches any uh, length of time, you've heard enough of this that maybe you become desensitized and inoculated to where when you hear this, you're like, yeah, 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 rejected, killed, raised. That's what he does. Thank you, Jesus. 
But if you were here, you would have been like, what? Come again? See, I, I had the immense privilege of sharing the gospel with uh, three Somali Muslims this last week, and it's something that I, I haven't had the opportunity to do in many years. It's very hard to have gospel conversations with Muslims, especially Somalis. I love them deeply, and I'm praying for them. I, I, I ask that you pray for them this week. Um, and as I shared with them, and they were asking me questions, and I got to the fact that Jesus died on the cross, they were like, what? Was, eh? Wait, your God died? That, that doesn't make sense. And, I, and, and their reaction, I think, is right. We should be like, huh? That, that, that shouldn't compute. God then dying. God king dying. Th those shouldn't come together. Kings don't suffer. Gods don't suffer. The Messiah was supposed to be victorious, not himself a victim. In other accounts, we've actually seen Peter, classic Peter, has the, the, I don't know what you call it, but he rebukes Jesus. This is so far removed from their understanding of what the Messiah should be that Peter has the, the foolishness to rebuke Jesus. It wasn't like, oh, that's a little different, Jesus. I haven't heard that. No, Jesus, you can't do that. Get out of here. And Jesus rebukes his statement as a satanic statement. It's a, the mindset was satanic. Be, because what Peter had in mind about the Messiah was primarily about power and glory and physical good. And so Jesus is putting that down. That's not what my kingdom is about yet. And that's key. See, D.A. Carson helps us here to understand how clueless the apostles were. It's going to be on the screen. If the screens are a little confusing for you, I made a few mistakes, and so you may, uh, and, and there's something wrong with our computers right now, so it's a little confusing. So bear with them and thank, thank the team back there for serving, the, despite we're sharing this with two other churches, and actually in another ministry now, so we're kind of messing with each other's stuff, so... When Jesus finally is crucified, I'm reading D.A. Carson, they're shattered. When he's in the tomb, they're not having a little quiet celebration, breaking out with joyful instruments and saying, yes, yes, I can hardly wait until Sunday. They still don't have any category for crucified and risen Messiah. They haven't absorbed it. They're, they're probably looking at each other and saying, deep, deep. Jesus often says deep things, you know. Jesus is probably hypothetical, like maybe spiritual death. It was spiritual, but it was for sure physical. What were the disciples fundamentally not understanding? And not just the disciples. The disciples represented, many, in many ways, just the Jewish people. What did they not understand? Well, the Jews not only needed a physical salvation, but they needed a spiritual one. If you read the Old Testament, you're going to see a constant pattern of sin falling and God being merciful to redeem them. But it was always temporary, and they would fall right back into the cycle. I think a lot of us know how it feels. Temporary redemption, going back to the same old, same old. So the thing that they needed is they needed new hearts. They needed a spirit that would transform them and give them the power to change. Jesus couldn't establish his kingdom right away because to establish his kingdom with these kind of messed up people would mean that he would on day one have to execute all those people. He needed to transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved one, a son, as Colossians 1 says. He, there needed to be a heart transformation for there to be them to be 
able to be even part of his kingdom. And so before he could establish a physical reign to make all things new, he needed to do something very deeply spiritual that was at miss. They understood the kingly aspect of the Messiah, the Jews did, but they didn't understand the priestly. And they didn't expect that the very sacrifice this Messiah would be giving would be himself. You needed both, both the king and the priest. If you have the king without the priest, you have no people. So the priest made the way for the kingdom. So Jesus had to be the sacrifice, and they could not understand this. And this is so important because this, it's going to be on the screen. A wrong view of messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. A wrong view of messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. If you don't understand fundamentally Jesus's mission and what it means for him to be a messiahship, that will trickle down into what you think it looks like to follow him. So what does, it, what does this shamed, rejected, ex executed, and raised Messiah mean for those who follow him? Let's now go to verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There are three imperatives here, three commands of following Jesus. Do you see them? Deny. What's the next one? Take up and follow. Thank you, three people. All right. Deny, take up, follow. All these are commands. And they're all in the active. They're not something that's done to you. They're something you do. And also, if you just look, they're all ongoing realities. And we're going to see that more and more. Furthermore, these are a chain. You can't separate them. You can't just deny and not follow, nor can you just follow without deny. They're inseparable. For many in our culture, in the West especially, Christians are known for don'ts. Christians don't do this. Christians don't drink that. Christians don't watch that, wear that, do that. But if you actually carefully read your Bible, you're going to see something very profound, and that's this, is that it's don't do this so that you can do this. And the difference between just saying don't and leaving it there and now do this is, is a completely different religion. So much throughout the Bible. It's over and over again. Don't do this so you can do this. Take off this so you can put on this. And this is significant in this passage. First of all, deny. What must we do? Deny. Deny what or who? Ourselves. We deny ourselves. What does this practically mean? Because this is not a crazy large group. I, I know every single one of you except like two people here. And I know that you guys have all heard this passage, at least at some level. But what does it actually mean to deny ourselves? Well, I want to practically sum it up into two categories. We deny sin and we deny good things. Sin and good things. Let me explain the good things in a minute. Sin seems more intuitive, but let's start with sin. We deny our worldly desires when our desires are contrary or corrupted and not in line with God's design. 
I want to be very crystal clear about this. God is not against desires. He's not against pleasure. He's not against joy. He's the author of joy, pleasure, and desires. The problem is, is when our desires and our pleasures and our joys are corrupted and twisted. And therefore, they need to be realigned. God is the author of joy. No one is happier than God. No one likes desire and joy like God does. The problem is that our desires are contrary to his way. And one of us needs to yield our desires, and he won't yield his. This is contrary to so much, sadly, of mainstream Christianity. I could just see it on Facebook or Instagram, is that these preachers out there will say stuff like, you got to be true to yourself. Or when they talk about sin, they say, sin, they say, I made a mistake and I wasn't true to myself. I need my truth. I found my truth. What you feel and what you desire is what is truest about you. You must obey your feelings and your desires if you want to be an authentic person. And I hear this so often when people get divorced. Have you not heard this? Well, we used to be in love, but we fell out of love. And I owe it to them and I owe it to me to be true to my feelings and true to my desires. I don't feel the way I used to, and therefore I must obey this feeling. See, the ultimate goal for so many professing Christians in our country, sadly, is self. Jesus exists as a cosmic teddy bear genie. He's there to comfort us when we're sad and when we're struggling. And then we do certain acts and rituals and jump through hoops to make sure this genie makes all our wildest dreams come true. But ultimately, at the center of it, we're still the God. We're still supreme. We'll trade our worship and some of our praise and some dollars as long as he lets everything go according to our own plan. But contrary to this error, many times, daily, often, following Jesus feels like saying no to that which feels most natural, which feels most right. Have you guys heard this phrase before? How can it be wrong when it feels so right? Gosh, well, who said good? It's right. Come on, guys. Right? This is in our culture. We drink it. We, no one says, hey, believe this. It's just all around us. That's just what we just absorb and think is normal. What you think and feel is, is, is what you should obey. Sometimes following Jesus is saying no, and you have a mini funeral in your heart. And everything inside of you feels like you just died. And yet, we'll see later on, because of Christ, you will have a resurrection. That death doesn't stay dead. There is no true loss in the Christian faith that is forever. It's always temporary. But we'll get onto this more later. The second thing that we deny is not just sin. Sin makes sense. You say no to those things that you know is contrary to God's word and his heart. But you say no to sometimes good things. Let me explain, because that sounds weird. Because you, would say, you wouldn't normally intuitively think, oh, God wants you to say no to good things, right? Well, self-denial is not just about denying our sinful desires. It's also about denying ourselves of different privileges, amenities, and the like. Saying yes to serving someone, if you're truly serving them, is going to require you to say no to something good in your life. Like rest or a nap. I love naps. Sometimes I have to serve someone, and then I don't nap. Naps are a good thing. God made naps. 
And if God, in, in Jesus, clearly, when he was a man, when he was on earth, he's, he's still human. Okay, that's complicated. He's still human. He loved napping, right? He napped on the boat. Naps are a good thing. But sometimes you say no to naps because you need to serve someone. See, good thing you say no to for a better thing. See, this is where we get into truly living like Christ. So much of Christianity from the mainstream is just, just don't do bad things. Just, just don't sleep around. Just, just don't do drugs and, and be a good person. And that's right. We ought not to do bad things. We ought not to sleep around. Those are, those are good biblical things. But truly following Jesus goes beyond just doing harmful things, and this is on the screen, but denying good things so you can do the best things. Denying good things so you can do the best things. This means that you may deny yourself living in your dream home because you know that there's streets in Minneapolis where there's no witness for Christ, and so you're going to forego your dream living situation so you can live in a place that is less than ideal so you can reach those people that no one else is reaching. You're saying something good, like a home, a dream home, saying no to a good thing that ultimately you're going to have perfectly in heaven so that you can say yes to those who don't have Christ right now. It may mean denying a hobby that you love and that is very life-giving so that you can get on your floor and play with your kids. It may mean putting down your phone. Phones are a good thing. So that you can look your kids in their eye and be present. These are good things. They're in inherently sinful. We, we must go beyond Christianity. Just basically, just don't do really evil things that, you know, even, even uh, the world says is bad. No, no. It's saying no to good things that you have every right to do. You have the liberty to do. You have the freedom to do. But you're saying no. It may mean calling someone because they really need care when you know this is going to be a stinking long night now. And they're going to drain you to death. <laughs> I can go on and on with examples. One, one example for us is where we live. Joanne and I regularly feel the pangs of jealousy, just want to be honest and real, of seeing some of you have family nearby. And you can just drop the kids off, see them later, see you later. You can have your grandma and grandpa come over and just invest into your kids and care for them. We don't have that. My parents are in Calif uh, Georgia, and Joanna's family is in California. Furthermore, you guys know about Joanna's skin condition. Minnesota's like the worst place for her to live, for her skin. Um, I grew up in the suburbs in Georgia. I kind of like the suburbs, to be honest. I like the amenities. I like the comfort. I liked my house growing up. I like space. I like things. And these are good things. God doesn't despise them. But right now, we believe God has called us to say no to these good things in their full. We're not suffering. I mean, we're, I have clothes. We're not like in the slums, you know. But, but we're saying no to a lot of good things because we want to say yes to the cities. We want to say yes to so many who don't know Jesus. And so that's just one little example among many of just saying no to good things. Again, they're good things. They're not bad. God doesn't say they're terrible or sinful. But you're saying no to good things that you have rights to so you can lay them down so you can engage in other things in following Jesus. However, we need to be really careful when I say this, not to confuse the call for self-denial as the end goal. See, living sacrificial on its own is not virtuous. 
Living simply just to live simply is not what the Bible calls us to. We can feel very, very hot, hoity-toity and holy. Oh, look, look at you with your nice car and look at you with your thing. And you can be greedy, the greediest person with a very simple lifestyle. See, we say no to certain things so we can say yes to the better things. So again, the call is not self-denial just to deny and say, look at me, God, I'm suffering. I haven't, I haven't showered in a week, right? But no, no, I am not doing these things that I have the money to so that I can be more generous, so I can serve, so I can love. For example, I know a number of people who make more money than all of us here, but you would never know it. They don't wear the signs of their tax bracket. They don't drive the cars of their tax bracket. You would never know how much more money they make than us. And do you know why they do it? is because they have all their needs, and so everything else goes into people, goes into the kingdom, goes into others. They're saying no so that they can say yes. You guys tracking with me? They don't have to do it. They do it because they love to do it. They, they have a greater reward. They have a greater joy. It's not a legalism. They're not earning anything. It's an overflow of joy. So again, just remember, just because you're frugal or just because you say no to desires does not mean you are being holy. Because holiness is not just not doing, it's also doing. Sometimes those good, good things is our very life and health. And this is, this is where it gets a little dicey. Because some of you guys are like, oh, I'm really uncomfortable right now what you're saying. It's about to get more uncomfortable, right? Sometimes Christ will call us to do things, follow him, that will endanger both our health and our livelihood. And it makes a lot of sense when we think about missions overseas. We're like, yeah, I, I have a category. A lot of us have a category for someone dying for Christ in like a tribe, right? But we don't have that category as developed when it comes to staying in Minneapolis when people are leaving, because it's not safe. And I'm not throwing shade on everybody who's left. I know that there's complicated reasons and the spirit may be leading you to leave, but it, it, to me, you're gonna have to be really careful because we can make a lot of excuses for ourselves in the name of health and safety. So somewhere along the lines, the, the right to life and property in the Christian, in Christians in America seems to be to give us, give us a pass. You, you guys tracking what I'm saying? I, I'm trying to be careful here because I, I feel like I could throw some of you under the bus on accident. I don't mean to. Do it. Do you say do it? Oh, okay. All right. Um, it, it just, I just, I've been around Christendom enough where I've heard people say the most wonderful things about following Jesus and so godly in the moment it could be dangerous it seems like it's, it's like an exception clause where everything in the Bible is just thrown out the window. And, and, and the Bible does not encourage endangering yourself. It does not. But what it does is encourages you to follow Jesus no matter what, and that may result in endangering yourself. We're not godly because we're in danger. See, I could be the biggest hypocrite, be like, I'm living in Minneapolis for Jesus, and yet I just like play Xbox all day, right? Like, who gives a rip if I'm living in Minneapolis for the gospel if I'm not even sharing the gospel? 
right? So it's a result of you engaging what God has called you to do, not just, I, I'm suffering for Jesus. That's, that's very, very important. Again, a wrong view of Messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. So if we forget that the very mission of Jesus and the lifestyle of Jesus was suffering, rejection, execution, and ultimately resurrection, then we're going to be very confused when those very things happen to us. And the, the potential is for us to react and say, no, 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 this must not be right. This, 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 is, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what God wants for me. He wants me to be healthy, wealthy, and happy in my best life now. But, but, but that's only when you forget what the Messiah really is about. Again, we can't just deny we must take up. So what do we take up now? Verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What does it mean to take up our cross? Well, cross for us is tricky because it's been so long since Jesus died on the cross is that, you know, we have crosses everywhere. You don't see them. You're like, <gasps> you're just like, oh, it's a cross. You see someone wearing it on their neck, it's, it's fine. You see a tattoo, that's fine. You see a sticker, it's fine, right? But some translators of the Bible have actually translated this word cross as execution stake. What they're trying to do is they're trying to, trying to waken us up to, this is a very horrific Symbol. This, this is not something tame and sweet where you just want to wear on your neck. You can wear it on your neck for, for various reasons. But, but what I'm saying is this is a horrific thing. When people thought about crosses back then, it'd be a, a gasp. They, they could think of thousands of, of people who were stripped naked and suffering all, along the road in, 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 in Rome or in, in Jerusalem for rebellion. I mean, this is a gruesome reality. When you think about what, what is the most humiliating, rejecting kind of death that's going to prolong the pain as long as possible, that's what crucifixion was. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, this is, this is flagging. This is alarming. It's flavoring the, what the denial of Jesus would look like. See, we're not de merely denying ourselves of things that we don't really care about. Right? We all have different things in our life that we just, it's just easier to give up. We're just wired that way culturally or personality. Eh, it's, it's fine. While someone else is very hard. It's not that. It's, it's a denial that likens execution. Denial that, that likens excruciating pain. That, that word excruciating comes from cross. If you spell out excruciating, you can see the word cross in there in a root form. See, when people would be executed... They, they would sometimes carry the whole cross or sometimes they would just have the top beam and they would put it over their shoulders and suffer as they walk up to the area of execution. Sometimes they're already beaten nearly to death up to that point and that's what happened with Jesus. Uh, and, and as they, they carry it up there, they'll finally get to the execution place and then they would, they would execute them. And so the picture is, is that Jesus says, this is what I'm about to do. This is what's about to happen to me. I'm about to carry this up and, and, and then you should follow me. And so you should see a picture of all these disciples falling lockstep behind them with their own cross. That's the visual picture you should have. When you see, take up your cross daily, following him, he is going up to, to the cross, going up to Golgotha, and his disciples are right behind him. That changes things. Taking up your cross merely can't mean like you had a hard day or, or, or the traffic was bad. Even Joni Erickson Tata, the famous quadriplegic who's given God so much glory, she wouldn't even call her wheelchair a cross. 
Because it wasn't because of Christ. It, it wasn't it, it just something that happened to her in, in life. It, it crosses our, what you take up because you followed Christ. It's the result. And if you think about a cross, you think about unbearable pain. And so listen, Christian, if you're following Jesus and sometimes or often it feels unbearable, you may be in the right place. This may be a good sign. It may be a sign you're actually following Jesus. Now, I know there's all these disclaimers I can make and, and, and footnotes I can say. And maybe it's because you just made poor choices or you overload yourself or all this kind of stuff. That, that's true, right? That's why we read the whole Bible. You read Proverbs. There's plenty of there that you could just make your life miserable because you're stupid. But this passage is specifically talking about following him. And in light of that, you are taking up pain and unbearable rejection. I think the challenge with this passage is that it can stay in the realm of theoretical, could it not? Because in our culture, we don't see people dying on crosses. And right now, at least in the West, we're not physically persecuted. Although that's not the case for many brothers and sisters across the globe, especially in 1040. But the problem with this passage for us Western Christians is that it can become so theoretical and though you should be willing to die for him physically, I think when Luke adds this word daily that the other gospel writers don't include, Jesus saying daily, I think it elevates from merely metaphorical or theoretical, but actual in your daily life. That it's not a physical thing that you're going to do every day, but it's going to be a spiritual reality that you're going to experience. This word daily changes the game. It pushes against this idea that Christianity is some sort of one-point thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember when I gave my life to Jesus that one time. Yeah, I, I laid it all down. I died to myself, and I gave his life to him. No, no, no. It's a daily reality. You, you guys have heard me say this, and I'm going to just keep saying it because it's worth saying. If you ask a Christian, when they, did they give their life to Christ, what should they say? This morning. This morning. It's a daily dying. It's a daily saying, God, I, as I wake up today, I give it all to you. You don't do it one time at camp when the guitar was just right. You do it daily. Dear Christian, did you die today? Did you die today? Did you have a moment today where you say, not my will, but yours be done? Jesus suffered, died, and raised from the dead, and our lives follow that pattern. Now, us following that pattern isn't saving us. Jesus did the saving, but it is mirroring his work. He is manifesting in our lives in a smaller way what he did ultimately on that day. I, I want to bring up a book. I, I, I never, never do this. You guys know I read and I listen to a lot of books. And this book is easily in my top 10 of all time. And that says a lot. Um, I think it's maybe one of the most important books written in the last 100 years. Because this is missing an important piece of what Christianity and following Jesus is about. The picture is that Jesus died. He went down. And, and God raised him up. And our lives reflect that same pattern every day. Several times sometimes is this J curve, that we're dying to ourselves, our desires, 
And God is raising us up with more character like Christ, good deeds, things that glorify God, and ultimately we're going to be raised with him again. I, I, I can't recommend this book enough to flesh out what this passage looks like in day to day. I'm just rereading it again. You don't even need to read the whole thing. Just read half of it, the first half. I think it gets a little repetitive, but um, this is the only mark of the book. What? Oh, that's a good question. You have to find out. Uh, J-Curve. J-Curve. And if, if you struggle, I will buy you a copy of this if you read it. And I'll sit down and love to hear about how God uses it in your life. So anyway, as I mentioned earlier, we can be very theoretical about this passage. We can all heroically say, I remember when I first read this passage as a 15-year-old after becoming Christian. Jesus, I die for you, bro. Like, I die for you. And that's good. You, you want to be willing to die for him. But if you want to know if you would actually die for him, go no further than to see if you die for him today. Do you die, husbands, for your wife when you want to nap or watch TV and you wash the dishes? Do you die when you forgive when you want to be bitter? Do you die today when you want to lie but you tell the truth? Do you die when you share the gospel with someone who you're afraid they're going to reject you and it will never make your relationship the same again? See, if you want to get a picture of how you respond on that final day or that a possibility for you to actually die for him physically, you just don't go further than just looking to your, your last 24 hours. Do you have a pattern of dying right now? If you don't have a pattern, for, pattern, pattern of dying right now, you're kidding yourself that you're going to stand boldly on that day. When a whole crowd is against you and cursing you and calling you all kinds of things, you will crumble right then, just like you crumble right now. If you crumble right now and you wilt when you're tired or because you're irritable, you will crumble in that day. Don't think that all of a sudden you're going to be something you're not. What you are in those moments when we read the biographies or we hear the stories, whatever you see in that one snapshot of that heroic moment is years in the making. Oh. Millions of little sacrifices, millions of little slights, millions of little yeses to God when no one sees you. When you see that big moment and you hear about that story, that's just a glimpse of all that's underneath. That's just the tip of the iceberg when all underneath is years of just laboring and on their knees, seeking the Lord, loving people in secret. So if you think you're going to die for Christ and yet your wife doesn't think you die for her today, you're kidding yourself. And I'm being hard on the guys, but women too. Kids, too. Recently, I, I've experienced some fatigue about dying to self. I, I, I have experienced a season where I just am so tired of being weak, so tired of another email or another sit-down conversation of someone telling me what I'm doing wrong or how I'm sin, sin hurt them, so tired of, of playing with my kids when I want to play and play golf. So tired of cleaning when I want to be served. And it hit me the other day because I was just like, God, I'm just, I want a break. I don't want to die today. And what I realized is that during this last season, when I have been pity partying myself and self-pitying myself about how hard my lot in life is as a pastor and, and living with four kids and all kinds of stuff, you know what I realized is that my intimacy with Jesus has been crap. Why I share that with you is this, is if you're not in love with God, you won't be able to die for him daily. 
If you're not intimately connected with him and enjoying him, you will eventually begrudge him for all your sacrifices you're making for him. Or you will start becoming proud that you're better than everyone else because look how sacrificial and loving you are. And now all these other Christians aren't like you. If you're not daily feasting on the pleasures of God through his word and his presence and his promises, you will not be able to sustain a life of denial. You will begrudge him. You will give up. You will be that person who for years did great things for God that we all heard about and then all of a sudden you have a huge crash because your intimacy could not sustain that level of sacrifice. It has to be together. I wanna encourage every member of APC this week to have an honest conversation with your DNA. Ask just three questions. I, I need to deny something. What? It's actually on the screen. Maybe it'll come up. I need to deny blank. You tell them. Second question, I need to take up blank. And third, do I have a relationship with God that can sustain a lifestyle of denying? Because if you don't, you will burn out. You will become either a legalist or you'll lose your faith and be jaded. You gotta sustain this lifestyle with intimacy. And it's gonna look different for each of us. The essence will be the same, but for different seasons and personalities and different stages of life, it's going to look different. And that's why you need healthy biblical community to help flesh that out in the day to day. Because something that will be good for you may be bad for someone else. You may need to lay down something and someone else needs to take that up. It's a complicated mixture of things and we need context. And so I encourage you to have the people in your life who know you best to help speak in to what this would look like fleshed out. It's a very dangerous thing if we have a carbon copy of what a good Christian should look like and everyone needs to copy it. The heart and essence should be there for all of us. But the actual, just give a quick example. Is having a large house as a Christian a bad thing? Maybe, maybe. You may be so generous with your rooms and your homes and you're doing it because you are so hospital or you're doing it because you wanna wall yourself up and never be around other people and live your best life now. And you spend all this money on yourself and you give nothing to the kingdom. So it just depends, right? So how can you do that? I can't answer that for you right now, but you, if you have godly community in your life who can speak in and listen carefully and, and you weigh out your heart, then you can kind of wrestle. What do I do with this? What, what, am I doing this for the right reasons? That's complicated. I'm getting in a lot of trouble with all these complicated things I'm throwing out quickly. Finally, the last imperative is going to be quicker. Follow. Follow. We've talked about this a lot in previous sermons. We've touched on it throughout this message, so we're going to skip this one mainly. Skimp on it, but one question. Do you live your life in such a way where people can tell you are not the leader? Do you live your life in such a way where people can tell you are not the leader? That's a devastatingly challenging question. See, when we continue to contradict his will, our will with his then we start to be shaped to where we start to love what he loves and will do what he does. Eventually, his will becomes our will. That's what we want. It's a trajectory. It's a reality that we increasingly are going to become more and more as we follow him. Let's move on. We're going to speed up as we finish this up. Verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What is he trying to say here? Essentially this, if you choose your will and your life over his, even up to the point where you gain everything, you're the most successful, most rich, most everything in the world, 
it'll ultimately be pointless because you'll lose it all. But if you deny yourself, lay down your life for Christ, you will ultimately inherit everything. And not just things, you get him. You get him. I love this quote. If you ever get an email from Dale, this is like the, the tag that he just has as a signature. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, who gains what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott, killed by the Aka Indians, gave his whole life for Christ, knew, quote should be up there, that he was not the fool. The fools are the ones who give everything they can for a very thing that they can lose. You're the wise person, church, if you give everything you can for that which you cannot lose. Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Listen, if you are ashamed of Jesus in the present, this terrifyingly sad reality is he will be ashamed of you when he comes. Jesus could be ashamed of you or me. That is a terrifying statement. There are a lot of people in the world that I don't want to shame, be ashamed by. There's a lot of people in the world that I don't want to let down. And Jesus is definitely not one of them. I, I've heard one pastor say this, choose your shame carefully. Choose your shame carefully, church. Either you choose to be shamed now or you choose to be shamed then. And what you choose exposes what your heart values the most. Either be shamed for Christ now or be shamed by Christ then. Now I'm gonna skip verse 26 because Pastor Daniel's gonna touch into it. But basically, I believe Jesus is foreshadowing not only the transfiguration in the next passage, but also um, his ultimate coming and ascension and, and so forth. But I, I wanna end with this. This last passage we read is so striking because it's a warning. What is he warning? Who is he warning here? First and foremost, the, the who? The disciples. He's warning the disciples. What did his disciples do? At the end of his life, when friends should show up, his friends deserted him and fled into the night. His best friends that he's been with abandoned him. They let him die alone. And what does Jesus do when he comes back from the dead? He seeks them out, not to shame them, to slap them, to have some vengeance on them, but restore them, forgive them, love them. This is the same God that pursues us when we're ashamed of him. Church, I know that every one of us here has at times been ashamed of Christ, either outwardly or inwardly. There's been times where we have chosen our way over his way, and that is one of the biggest overstatements of all time, right? And yet this is the same God that does verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This is the God who we follow, someone who dies for sinners. And if you don't have peace with God and you need your sins forgiven, and if you, that's a stupid question, you need your sins forgiven if you don't have peace with God. There's no other way to have peace with God than through Jesus. I'd love to talk to you more about that if that's not you. But I wanna make an important note for those Christians here. 
because this passage can be very dangerous because we can walk away thinking, Jesus died for me, now I need to live for him and have this kind of mindset we are earning back, paying him back. Jesus doesn't say, follow me and then I will die for you. What does he do? I'm dying for you, now follow me. The order is significant. You see that? One is earning, the other is giving. We're not earning his death, his death earns us. His life, death, and resurrection makes a way for us to be able to follow him. The big difference between us and Jesus when we die is that Jesus is dying for our sins, and then when we die daily, we're not dying for our sins because it's already been de dealt with. We are following him in his footsteps. We are enacting and embodying in our life, in our living, in our dying, in our suffering, in our struggling, what Jesus has done. And we are just doing the obvious follow-up. Who wouldn't want to follow Jesus? Who wouldn't want someone who loved you unto death and died for you? Why wouldn't you want to follow him? Who else is like him? Who else is worthier? What's the alternative, people? What's the alternative then to follow him? You? Follow you? Follow me? No, he's the only one worthy worth following. And I want to end with the, one of the sweetest passages in the Bible because so much of what I've been unpacking is speaking about dying, losing, and, and, and so forth. But the Christian life is ultimately about gain. It's about losing so you can have the greatest. Let me end with this passage. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, as trash in order that I may gain Christ. Church, why should you follow Christ and die daily? Because you gain Christ. You gain so much more than what we lose. Amen? Amen. All right. Daniel, would you come up? Let's pray. Father, there's so much here. And I know so many different statements I said could be misunderstood because I wasn't clear or because they're just hard and easy to misunderstand. I pray, Lord, that your truth would ring forth. Your truth would meet us right now and expose the areas of compromise, the areas that we need to die, and the areas that we believe in our heart that you're not better than those things. Help us believe that the life of a Christian is gain that death brings forth resurrection, and what you have for us is far greater than anything we say no to. Oh God, help us believe this. Help us grasp this. If there's anything that I said was unbiblical, untrue, let us forget it. But all that is true here, let it transform us and help us fall more deeply in love with you. Thank you for dying for us. We love you, Jesus. Help us follow you in Jesus' name, amen.